Hello and welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden, that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the 2011 remake of John Carpenter's The Thing. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to be talking about <laughs> The Thing from 1982, directed by John Carpenter. This episode of Cinema of Meaning is sponsored by NordVPN. Go to nordvpn.com slash cinema of meaning to get over 60% off a two-year plan. So this was my first time watching The Thing, this this yeah. horror cult classic, I guess you could call it. You know, pinnacle of 80s cult horror, maybe some would say. It's a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed watching it. I, this was not the first time for you. So Tom, nope. maybe you want to yeah. kick kick us off talking about like your first experience with it and what it was like to revisit it. Ooh, um, I don't remember actually when I first saw this. It must have been more than like 10 years ago, I think. It might have been around the time actually that the 2011 uh, remake slash prequel came out. Okay. Which may have gotten me curious to see the original one. It's not one, I, I do remember that it, it's not one of those movies that I grew up with. As they say, I'm not even sure who right. of us suggested this film to discuss it, but uh, yeah, for me anyways, it was, it's one of those movies that's, uh, you know, it's great, but every time you watch it again, you're reminded like just how great it is. It's just it such a great soundtrack, such a great story. And for me, it's one of my favorite horror movies. I, I think it's one of the most cleverly written ones, like with a lot of horror movies, there's you often have this contrived writing going on where characters need to get into certain situations in order for the horror stuff to happen. And I feel like in this movie, everyone always seems to act to the to the best of their knowledge and the best of like the most relatable thing that I would probably do in that scenario. And that to me makes it really fun. It's a movie that there that that never feels contrived. Like every time there's you know, they kill one of the, the bad guys, but then there seems to be a little part that escapes and you're like, oh, that would, of course that little part runs off, but then they catch that anyways. And then the plot has to advance in some, in, in a different direction. Like it, it always keeps you on your toes a little bit. And that's what I really love about it. And yeah, that's just, it's just such a fascinating story also about how this movie was initially banned by critics and bombed at the box office probably because of that. And then it be quickly became like a more underground cult classic until eventually reaching the status of like a bona fide masterpiece. Like now everyone is hailing this as one of the great horror movies, even though it was initially completely discarded. And that's something I, I was going to ask you about this. Like, how do you think that happens? Like, how does a movie go from being completely dismissed when it comes out to being completely, not just reappreciated, but actually being elevated to this kind of stature, like what the dynamics behind that are. There's a couple things that I think makes certain movies. Well, let me put it this way. I think one of the thing, when that happens, what that reveals a lot of times, I think is just how important the context of a movie is to how people come to appreciate it or how they, the way in which they see it or how they rate it. And 
there's a couple types of context that I think affect that. Like there's some movies that, at least for me, it genuinely takes a couple watches for me to really fall in love with them. Um, the Big Lebowski is a great example of this. Like the first time I mm. watched The Big Lebowski, I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And then by the third time I watched it, I was like, this is one of my favorite movies ever. But it genuinely just with repeat viewing develops into something that has a different feeling than the first time you watched it. And I can absolutely, I've only seen the thing once so far, but I can absolutely see how that's the case with this movie. It has ambiguity. There's a lot of kind of unknown to it. I could see how it would also mm. be very rewatchable because it moves at like a pretty fast pace. It, even though it's a horror film and it's kind of dark and it's nasty, it's got all this crazy practical. There's like a, uh, it's very light on its feet, if that makes sense. Like it, mm. it doesn't get bogged down in this like really existential, dark kind of heavy space, even though it kind of like it flirts with that a little bit almost. Yeah, that, there's some cosmic horror, I think that, Yes, is going on that also makes it really interesting thematically. But uh, yeah, we'll get right. into that later. I can imagine how you could rewatch this a bunch of times and enjoy mm. a little bit more every time. And then I don't know how this was advertised or, you know, it, there's just certain ways in which when a movie is presented, you expect a certain thing or whatever. You expect, <laughs> you expect yeah, yeah. something. And then as some of that fades into the background the critics response or whatever and people just start discovering it and approaching it for what it is you you start to be able to meet the movie where it's at and appreciate it for you know just the thing mm -hmm. that it is i think a great recent example of this is like i would be very surprised if that does not happen with babylon which we discussed mm -hmm. recently i think as a bonus episode yep. So if people want to go yeah, yeah. go check that out, that's a bonus episode on, on Nebula. But Babylon is is one of those movies that I think like kind of got almost a little bit panned or not very many people saw it. It just got lost in the fray for whatever reason. But there's so much in that movie that I think when people like come back to it and just experience it for what it is without the context of trying to judge it as like, is this one of the best movies of this year? I think people will find it really fun and enjoyable. Anyway, mm -hmm. sorry to rant for so long and answer that question, but uh, we but can yeah, maybe I, circle back around at the end to to other examples of movies that are released today without the uh, the proper acclaim that we think might yes, have. Yeah, uh, will uh, be reappreciated Reach. like the thing is uh, like a yeah. few decades from now. One last thing I want to add on to that is mm -hmm. watching this now in 2023. There's also a unique experience compared to watching it in the 80s, which is the novelty of the practical effects in here is incredible. Like this is arguably like the height of this kind of, you have Alien is like probably the best competition, but like this is arguably the height of this kind of practical effects work. It's, it's just like stunning in its own right. It's these bizarre, like almost art pieces that are goopy and wet and nasty yep. and disgusting. And when you watch that in the 80s, you're like, oh, this is cool, but like practical effects are pra are the thing. That's what's around everywhere at the time. When you mm -hmm. watch it now, it's like something completely alien. Forgive the, <laughs> the uh, pun or whatever, but mm -hmm. it's something completely outside of the realm of like 
what we're used to seeing. So I think that juxtaposition too. Anyway, I'll stop now. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, one thing I was going to say about, you mentioned that the movie being very light on its feet and very easy to rewatch. Um, I think there's obviously the sort of puzzle effect going on where you... right. It's very rewarding to revisit this over and over again and pick apart all the little details, even though you know there's some fundamental ambiguity at the end of it. So there's, it basically leaves questions fundamentally unanswered, but it's still there's still enough details there that make it fun to pick it apart. And yes. just for basic, I think one of the qualities that really elevates the or really helps the basic rewatchability is, is that there's very little melodrama in it. It lacks a certain heaviness that right. would bog down other stories and really strips it to that more essence of, you know, we have these guys, they're isolated, and this is their obstacle. There's no, like, for example, there's no wives or children back at home that have to be, you know, that they have to make that one final call to like, oh, I'm going to die, but... And now I'm sad, but it's it's just the the the, I, the story what that you see is the story that you get. There's no yeah. nothing else weighing it down or filling it with needless fat. And it, it's kind of funny also the opening scene. There's a kind of casualness to the way they respond to because you know the movie opens with this. Um, shot of this dog running over the Antarctic fields, being chased by this helicopter, and they arrive at the research station that our characters are in. And so they come out seeing what's up, and they see this crazed man with a gun coming at them, and he sh actually shoots one of them. And even that guy, the, the guy who gets shot, is like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> <Right>. and, <Yeah. laughs> and then the other one, you know, he gets killed. And you see that throughout the movie, there's a very... A uh, recurring sense of non-reactiveness, in a way, to some of to a lot of the characters. Obviously, there's a lot of the distrust that becomes the essence of it, but there's no, right. there's never that moment where there's that big emotional breakdown or the real heavy-handed, yeah, the, just a real heavy-handed melodrama that can sometimes make a horror movie like this more heavy-handed than it has to be. I think. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and and just Kurt Russell is uh, is so great in this. I think he's he was really at the height of his game, and a lot of the act the other actors too. I I like that they're not everyone is sort of distinct in what they do and what function they serve, but at the same time they're not the typical '80s stereotypes. Like that's not the the jacked up beefcake or the the nerdy scientist nerd, and then the you right. know all, you know a lot of the characters they feel interchangeable but in a good way like everyone is human but also you know somewhat three-dimensional even though they don't have the most characterization and it's, it's just a very fun movie to rewatch uh over and over it has a high pacing it never gets dull really and there's i think a lot uh, of interesting stuff going on thematically that i'd like to get into i'm not sure if you have anything else to add about other more like experiential or just a presentation of it? No, I think we can probably move into dive straight into the thematic stuff. Maybe we'll come back to that other elements if they come up. This episode of Cinema of Meaning is brought to you by NordVPN. 
I've been using NordVPN for years and a VPN is an incredibly valuable tool for both protecting your privacy online and just getting around geo-blocking that restricts your access to content sometimes. There are certain movies that are literally only available in other countries that I wouldn't be able to watch if it weren't for NordVPN allowing me to rent it from another country. A good example of this is the movie Last and First Men, which I absolutely love, but still isn't out here in the US. NordVPN is very easy to set up. You can use it to protect up to six devices, so your computer, phone, laptop, there's great apps for all of them. They're very easy to use, very easy to get going with one of their super fast servers. I'm a big fan of NordVPN. It makes my life a lot easier. So give it a try. There's a 30-day risk-free money-back guarantee. When you sign up using our link, nordvpn.com slash cinemaofmeaning, or you can click the link in the show notes, you'll get an extra four months when you sign up for the two-year plan. So sign up at nordvpn.com slash cinemaofmeaning. And thanks again to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode. The, the two movies I immediately want to compare it to in my mind uh, for whatever reason is Alien, obviously, mm-hmm. and then Annihilation 2. That's the one I thought of too, yeah. Yeah, and where it really sets itself apart, where it's really different from Annihilation is kind of what you're talking about with the lack of this, like, Annihilation has this, like, existential, like, melodrama to it. It's like (laughs) they're all self-destructing and going crazy and it all, you know, it's like this has none, this doesn't have have any of that, which I'm coming from the perspective, I love Annihilation, I love that stuff, Mm -hmm. but it, it's refreshing sometimes to have a change of pace and have something that's just very, you know, like, here's what here's what you're getting. But also yeah. the flip side of that is, I think it's been a while since I watched Alien, so forgive me if this isn't necessarily the case, but I think Alien tiptoes tips a little bit more into what you're describing, where, like, some of the characters are kind of these, like, tropey caricatures. Um, mm-hmm. We definitely see that in, like, the sequels, where it's like, you got your, you got your basic guys... Uh, and then the other, the thing that guys and gals, you're <laughs> different types. The other thing that, that sets this apart from Alien, which is just like monster one by one kills people off, is mm-hmm. the whole, the intrigue element, the Among Us bit where you're kind of having to, to second guess and doubt each other, which makes it a fun game actually engages you as the viewer a little bit more because you're not just caught up in this suspense but you're also playing this little game of trying to figure out who might be the thing. And yeah, you're just running those, yep. those questions through your mind. And because it ends ambiguous, ambiguously, you can kind of continue to do that as you rewatch it. The last thing I'll say structure wise is I also really love that, that opening sequence, like all the way through going to the base and you just kind of have this feeling even before, you know, what's going to happen of, well, this is where we're headed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just this like desolated charred out base. By the end of it, it kind of is, you know, it is where you're headed. The base is burnt. You got two guys left over. So I don't know. There's just like a symmetry to that that I find really kind of appealing anyway. Yeah. But yeah, we can, we can, we can start to delve into the thematic underbelly. Where do you want to start with that? Yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily as deep or complex as some other movies that are more specifically exploring themes or more uh, right. explicitly. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's some interesting observations 
both from given the context that it was released in uh, and some of the cultural elements that were going on at the time versus just the things that we see into it now, not necessarily what based on our right. current day, but also the more timeless stuff that has survived or stayed relevant regardless of whatever cultural landscape we find ourselves in. Because I think, you know, the obvious association, I think, with what was going on at the time was I uh, either the the whole Cold War that was going on with right. between the US and Russia. And the on the other hand, there was also the AIDS epidemic, which I think was reaching oh, it, its heights around that time as well. So you have both from a political point of view that, you know, especially in, I think in America, that was a thing like the, are the, you know, are the, are the commies secretly among us? Are there right. enemies within, <laughs> within our known circles? And I think one other interesting element is the, which sort of plays out at the end is that concept of mutually assured destruction where right. you, there's that nice little metaphor at the beginning where um, Kurt Russell's character, McGrady, he is playing chess against the computer. And I'm not sure exactly what happens, like chess-wise, like either the computer makes this impossible move or does like, or even cheats. And so, which kind of represents the, the thing that also sneaks its way or uses these sneaky techniques to take over all the crew members. But then at the end... Uh, McGrady is like, well, screw you. Like he, he just pours his whiskey into the right. <laughs> and just basically shuts the whole system down. Which he all, which is this light, nice little bit of foreshadowing towards what happens at the end, where he basically does that. You know, the computer lo it looks like the computer is winning, and then McGrady is like, well, yeah, to hell with it. Let's blow yeah, it. Let's just fry it. <laughs> yeah, let's fry it. <laughs> But yeah, he does end up in in that final bit. He does end up taking out himself too. I think it is suggested at least it, it's. We'll get to the ending, but which is also yeah. uh, has a lot of ambiguity in itself for various reasons. Uh, one of which is the whether it this means that they are going to die or whether they make it yeah. at the end or if there's any hope left. But yeah, I think that's as far as you know, in simple or in short, the sort of Cold War political yeah. angle to it and then you know just the stuff with a pandemic which is maybe now more relevant again with have a, after having gone through the, the the covid pandemic that that element of you don't know who might be uh, a danger to you you know it could be someone close to you and um, i'm not sure if this is actually made clear in the movie whether or not the thing once it completely assembles or assimilates whether then that assimilation knows that it's the alien. I think right. it does, but it also does suggest that it assimilates completely, you know, full tissue, all, all the, the exact cells, but yeah. I love how ambiguous that all those elements are left. Like we learn, we learn the basic mechanic of, hey, this thing comes in and it spreads basically somehow and it multiplies and assimilates and mimics but then mm -hmm. almost nothing else about it is confirmed or given to us in exposition they're just dealing with it and even their assumptions at different times 
of, hey, maybe it's doing this or it's working this way or whatever, in my mind, I'm kind of left wondering, you know, were they even right about it? You know, it's not the movie presents it in a way where we very much only come at it from their perspective. It never seems to like take a step back through the fourth wall and be like, here's what's happening. Here's what's really going on. And I think that makes it very compelling to watch because it gives you the perspective of being in those kinds of situations. You know, I think that was something that became palpable to people, you know, maybe during COVID was like being inside of this experience and having the limitation of not just your own kind of subjectivity, but like the collective sort of limitation of our own perspective of, oh, we're figuring this out as we go. We're trying to actively understand this. We don't Mm -hmm. know. And all we can do is kind of do what we think is best at each step and hope that that works. And that's, that's what all the characters are doing throughout this whole movie. And there's, there's such a, an untethered feeling to that that sets in so quickly where you can see how they kind of how fast they want a specific leader they're like we need some sense of order uh and there's even the the one character i forget his name but he's like i can't do it right before mccready kind of steps up oh yeah he's the original leader i think that's gary he's the one who had the revolver and gives it up because yeah. Yeah. Who shoots the Norwegian in the opening? I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting examination of kind of like the feeling of being inside that kind of situation and just mm-hmm. how quickly suddenly you feel like, uh oh, <laughs> the, the, you know, I don't know what to do here. And all I can do is just kind of, they, they don't even really have time to like take a step back and be like, okay, mm-hmm. let's, let's make a plan. Let's deal with this. Uh, you know, they kind of try to do that at different points, but it's just happening and they have to like respond to the situation as it, as it's coming at them. Yeah. It's also interesting how quickly the thing is revealed for what it is. Like they take in, they shoot the Norwegian guy, they take the dog in and then I don't think it's very long before the, we get that scene with the dog in the cage or he's put like in the kennel where yeah which is a really good dog actor by the way but anyways the dog it, it sort of explodes into this thing and all the, the tentacles and stuff come out and then all the characters immediately see what it is and i, I just love the way their initial reaction is just to to, to just put put the flamethrower on it and burn it right to pieces <laughs> like that's what i was talking about with moments that unusually they become a little contrived. Like there's that little moment where it seems like it's about to escape, but then they're like, nope, you no, you're not. And they yeah, just yeah. take it down anyways. And it feels like in that moment, it could have been resolved were it not for the fact that the thing already assimilated it. a crew member the night before, which you can see when the right. dog walks the hallway. And then there's the shadow of someone who is now supposedly uh, also the thing, basically. So yeah, yeah that, that's what I really like. It immediately sets up these stakes. It makes everyone clearly aware of what's going on because, you know, this could have very well been a more slow burning, almost more of a drama where the thing would creep through this space more quietly until, you know, maybe at the, 
before the third act or so, it would be revealed for what it is. And uh, before that, it would just be uh, suspicion and maybe characters acting weirdly or I don't know. But I, I, I just like the way they went this route by immediately setting the danger and then putting the characters in that position that you described where they now have to respond instinct instinctively almost you know they there's no time to really organize they have to uh the process of understanding what they're up against and fighting what they're up against is happening simultaneously and i think that's something that's very interesting and one that something that we all i think saw very clearly with covid where we were trying to figure it out before or as it was happening and you know, it's it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh, we should have done that, or maybe that wasn't so effective, or maybe this would have been more clever. But that, I think that's that's clearly that denial of the fact that the characters were acting with to the best of their knowledge with the available knowledge that they had at that given moment. And um, yeah, I think this movie is one of the best examples of some of a of a story that really embodies that principle that. You know, characters are both gathering information as well as acting on the limited information that they already have, which makes their actions feel very relatable and in a way even almost clever, even though we know they don't have they don't yet have the full picture and the whole picture is still sort of developing. So yeah, right. that that's just something I, I really loved about this movie and the way that what that demonstrates about how we tend to function in uh, crises, situations like these. I don't know how other people felt about it, but watching it, I was kind of struck by how quickly I felt like, oh, this situation seems kind of hopeless. Or like, I was like, hmm. pretty early on, I was like, yeah, at best, uh, McCready is the only one making, making hmm. it out of this, um, which turned out to be wrong, I guess, or maybe wrong in maybe one, either maybe two people make it out or maybe nobody, yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's left ambiguous. But that feeling set in pretty quickly for me of like, hmm. oh, they're not doing a good job <laughs> of containing this. Like they're not going to be able to. And I thought that was kind of a unique feeling as well. Uh, I think a, the the disconnect for a lot of horror films that I find sometimes is they try to string you along on this belief of, oh, these people might be able to survive. But then the whole format of the, the, the movie is we have to kill them off one by one. And so it's kind of trying to create the suspense, but also constantly undercutting it by, I don't know, it's, a, it's an interesting mm -hmm. dynamic in horror films sometimes. But I think this one works well in that very quickly I had this sensation of like, Oh yeah, they're screwed, and this isn't going to go well at all. Do, do you remember the exact moment when that happened? I think it was shortly after you find out what the thing is, uh, or like it bursts with the dog. Uh, oh, there's this little funny com computer animation. This very rudimentary. Um, it, it's now like a bit silly looking. The kind of exposition, yeah, yeah. the the way the, the computer displays the exact information that we need to hear in the exact right font so that we can all read it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's when it said, like, uh, if not contained, uh, will spread to all life on Earth within right. so many, so many hours. It was slightly before that even that I started, I started to feel that way. Mm. But yeah, I, th I, I found that to be 
I don't know. I liked that sort of mm-hmm. that sort of move, regardless of how I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the idea of the story not so much becoming about their own survival, but rather about. Uh, I think the director John Carpenter he likened it to more of a like a World War II suicide mission, where it's the goal right. of the quest is not do we get out alive, but rather is do we contain this evil or do we conquer this evil and then uh, whatever happens to us that's irrelevant yeah yeah and that's how the characters feel like they're approaching the situation pretty quickly which i think i think the fact that it's not getting into this melodramatic existential territory that we talked about earlier helps it not feel like this hopeless thing even though it very quickly feels like they don't stand much of a chance it's because they all have this very it doesn't it doesn't take the time to go to the characters and they're like oh we're all gonna die oh this is the end (laughs) they just deal with it head on and that makes that kind of hopelessness feel a little bit more palatable i think as a viewer or it's easier to engage with it doesn't doesn't start to bog things down which are fine things to explore we both you know we'll we'll sit and watch a, a Bellatar movie so <laughs> i'm not opposed to getting bogged down in the existential on principle but mm-hmm. when you're trying to make a fun a movie where doing a defibrillator on somebody like accidentally busts through their chest and your arms get eaten off and you're like ah and then suddenly everything's <laughs> exploding into spider tentacles like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can be uh, it's fun to just allow that to be like a, a what it is in this film I yeah. guess. Yeah, it's funny cuz the I do remember the first time I saw this movie I I didn't feel like the ending was necessarily bleak or pessimistic. Like I even found it quite uplifting in a strange way in but more in that yeah the the sort of World War 2 suicide mission right. way where you know the soldiers are like completely filled with bullet holes and they're dying at the end, but they achieve their mission. So they give each other one last fist bump before checking out, you know, that, that kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, that's what I felt at the end of it. Like they, they at least defeated the evil or so it's, you know, there's a little bit of ambiguity to that. Um, but it seemed to me at least at the time that, uh, McGrady and uh, the other guy, Childs, they came out on top and, you know, he said like, oh, we, why don't we just wait, see what happens? Like, they don't longer care what's going to ha- happen next. You know, they're probably going to die, but maybe they get rescued. So for me, that there was a strange kind of hopefulness to that in the way that they, at least, you know, there's obviously hope for humanity as a whole with, uh, if you assume the interpretation that the thing has in fact been destroyed and that it's been contained to whatever they did in this story but yeah also just to the way the characters at least end on a victorious note you know they did they did not it, it's the kind of the almost the tolkien-esque thing like in lord of the rings where characters do not necessarily achieve physical victories but it's more about the moral victories and the spiritual right. victories and yeah i kind of felt like that happened in this movie it depends a yeah. little bit on how you interpret the interpret actual the ending. ending yeah i think i interpreted it slightly more potentially pessimistically although i don't Mm -hmm. think i also took it as very ambiguous like i don't know 
when I when the ending hit, I was like, "Ooh, I really don't know if they accomplished their goal or not." I felt by the ending, I was like, I was still not necessarily convinced uh, McCready wasn't the thing uh, at that point. Which I know a lot of mm. people like. I was reading then like different ideas and theories before recording this, and I know it seems like most people think that he's not and the movie does kind of present that and he, he's kind of the perspective that we come from so we're inclined to kind of trust him yeah. um there is some people who seem to think that like childs is they might have defeated it and maybe neither of them are one of them might be both of them could be all seem kind of vaguely possible to me i think the most common one is that mcgrady is himself and childs might be the thing might be the thing yeah yeah there used to be a theory that because the the way the thing works or the way it's established in the movie is that it assimilates by shredding through clothes and then assimilating to the naked body people argued that in the final shot childs was wearing a different coat he was wearing now like a beige coat whereas oh, before yeah. that he was wearing a blue coat but then apparently like the 4k re-release came out which is much better quality and then they people noticed oh the beige coat is actually the blue coat but then covered with snow so he was actually right. still wearing right. uh the same clothes that he had all along so that was kind of debunked just also kind of outside of canon maybe but did you see the 2011 version the new one no i haven't in that movie establishes an another quality of the thing. They they have a sort of similar thing to the blood test, but they I, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but they establish that the thing can assimilate naked bodies, but it cannot assimilate foreign elements within it. So like things like an oh, earring or something like that, it it cannot replicate. And you know, that's obviously new information that they invented later right. but if you project that back onto the original then childs was still wearing an earring in the last shot which would also suggest that uh he was in fact human and i think yeah, the last yeah. major theory i looked i looked all of them up uh, before this um the last major one is has to do with the molotov cocktails that um mccrady uses to burn down the whole place I don't remember this one either exactly how it because I looked it up after I saw the movie again so I didn't watch the movie specifically looking for this but there's something about him drinking whiskey and then filling the bottles up with fuel and then making mol Molotov cocktails right out of them and then in the end he hands that bottle to Charles who then drinks it casually which some viewers have taken as a hint he is the thing because McGrady basically hands him a whiskey bottle filled with fuel and he drinks it kind of casually right. so yeah that some viewers have suggested or have interpreted that as that it's the thing and then the thing doesn't obviously doesn't know what alcohol tastes like so it's just yes. trying to conform instead of being taken aback by drinking right. fuel but obviously there's other people other people who have then really zeroed in on like the exact frames and then apparently at the beginning of that scene there's a few frames where it looks like McGrady himself is about to take a sip of the bottle before he knows that Childs is still alive and still is aware of his presence. So he was not performing it or anything. So apparently that right, that's right. also 
iffy as to how how well does it hold up under scrutiny. Right. But but yeah, for me, my take usually with ambiguous endings like these is that I tend to go for what feels emotionally satisfying rather than what feels the most intellectually clever. I'm kind of a sucker for just yeah. happy endings, especially after this rather bleak journey or not, you know, not the happy, happy ending, but in the way that I talked about earlier, where they, at least we have two yeah, guys, they, they come out on top and the they goal. have this little last sip of whiskey together. They do the little chuckle and then they, and then it's over, you know, at least there's some, like some, some sense of we did it buddy. And right. which I can't help but enjoy a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> apparently john carpenter pitched a sequel at some point where they were they both survived somehow so you know theoretically that's maybe the fact that they or theoretically in his mind they both weren't although you know how do you how do yeah. these things work with what's canon you could you could revise mm -hmm. it a little bit for the sake of uh you could revise your intention a little bit for the sake of making a sequel if that was your goal, yeah. I was reading some of the, some of the theories you were talking about. And I quickly, pretty quickly based on the kind of evidence that I was seeing was like coming to the conclusion that I don't think there's an answer buried in like some little detail somewhere mm -hmm. in the movie. There's a kind of a natural ambiguity that's, I think yeah. is baked into this portrayal of all the characters at some point or another seem to ask, act a little bit suspect or or do things that kind of paint them in a certain light. And that might just be part of building up the drama of like, ooh, who could it be? You know, mm. uh, I think I'm more slightly more of a, a masochist than you. So I, the, <laughs> the the ending for me that's more emotionally fulfilling is the one where where we're like, ooh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they <laughs> maybe they didn't. There's something about that ambiguity of yeah. not knowing if they even accomplished the goal, you know, because in a, in a sense, they're both sitting there. They're both still suspicious of each other. And so there's there's this level at which, like, you know, they might die, mm -hmm. they might be rescued, but either way, they kind of have to just accept whatever's happened at this point. Like, either yeah. they did or they didn't, and they're not going to know until, kind of like McCready says, like, they see what happens. Yeah. There is a small sign of trust there because they... One other thing they establish earlier on is that it's because the the thing is basically a creature that almost each cell of it operates independently. Right. And yes. even the smallest amount can overtake or assimilate a human body. So that's why they no longer share food. They no longer share drinks. And so because they do share that bottle of whiskey at the end, there's this little hint of trust. And that's maybe why McCready, he does this little chuckle after Childs uh, takes a sip. That maybe he recognizes like, oh, they were sort of the most heated rivals, I think, also that there was a lot of distrust between them. And now that that distrust is overcome, ironically, because of the sheer hopelessness of their situation. Right, right. You know, that's my interpretation, at least. Again, my maybe warmer, humanity-loving <laughs> <laughs> interpretation of it. It's also kind of what I have with the ending of Inception, where I tend to go... I tend to go for the ending that feels most straightforward. Like, I don't like the idea that the real ending is somewhere hidden behind the clues that only 1% of the audience will catch on to. And so I tend to go, to some extent, I, al I also like to go with the more popular vote. Like, I think the, the most immediate response that uh, most people have 
in some way feels more valid to me. Right. And it's not always correct, but uh, in this case, I think most people would assume that if you don't really think about it too hard, that the ending is the ending that you get, just the two humans making it out. In the same way that the ending with Inception, it all but suggests that, not to spoil, I, I think everyone's seen Inception. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, <laughs> Skip ahead is, 30 <laughs> seconds if you <laughs> haven't seen Inception. <laughs> that that Leonardo DiCaprio makes it home and that he's not in fact dreaming, even though there's a little hint. But the thing about ambiguous endings is that that regardless of how you see them or when they are done right, that I think the the quality of a ambiguous ending is that no matter how you interpret it in these plot mechanical sense, it still thematically says the same thing, basically. At least I think that's the case with Inception, where no matter how you interpret that ending, like if it's either if it's all dream, is it all real? Like the point of that movie is that Leo doesn't care anymore, basically. Right. And I feel like there's something similar that goes on here where we have this whole drama of distrust and hostility towards each other. And at the end, you know, regardless if either one of them or both of them are the thing or or none of them, there's a, there's in their mind, at least there's something that's moved past it or moved beyond it yeah. and that doesn't care anymore. No matter yeah. how you look at the ending, that's, that's an element that I think uh, stays the same. There's an acceptance there of, well, we've done, yeah. we've done what we can and, you know, let's just, let's just see what happens at this point. Did I see things right in that scene where McCready is recording the little message and he says, no one trusts anyone. And then it seems like he goes back and erases that and re-records something else over top of it. Is that what happens in that scene? He records it, he then pauses it, he then rewinds it to listen back to it, and then maybe fast-forwards again to reach back at the end of the tape so that he can continue recording okay. it. Okay, right. Now that you say it, I'm not 100% sure. This would be a good movie to really do a deep-dive video essay where you can continuously yeah. pause and rewind and then really zoom in on specific frames and stuff like that. There's one other thing that I... Um, wanted to talk about thematically speaking that I was curious to hear your thoughts on is, and that's what this whole conflict or the way that the thing operates says about the human soul, basically. It, it's a very broad question, but I like the idea that, you know, human beings, we are a body, but we have also this essence of ourselves within us, call it a soul or the spirit or something, or just consciousness, basically that which makes us us and yeah. then you know when you have this i think this is where the, the, the cosmic horror for me really comes in then when you have this thing that can completely assimilate as the movie suggests into a full replica like to what extent or what does that say about who you are as a right living being are you just copyable or are is there something that ends up being lost in a simulation. It's an interesting question and one that oddly feels kind of relevant right now. I've been talking, I say talking to, I've been working with, I don't know what the right way to describe it is, but been using uh, GPT-4, which was just released as of when we're recording this a couple days ago. You know, the currently the most powerful available iteration of 
chat GPT, the Bing AI, like all of these things. And it's wild to kind of converse with. It doesn't pretend to be like very human and sentient and have a personality. I was using it the other day and it's really weird to use and think about the fact that like having a an intelligent, engaged conversation is no longer just a feature of humanity anymore. Mm. Like that used to be not that long ago, a thing that you could only do with another human being. And, and it's weird. It's not like I sit down and believe like, oh, chat GPT-4 is alive or sentient or something like that. But it's still possible to have a conversation with it in the same way that basically you and I are having now. Like, it's not as good as the conversation that you and I are having now, but it's, it's close enough that I'm like, it's a real, it's a real conversation that induces kind of this very strange feeling where it's like a little tiny piece of what we previously considered to like make us human in some like mm -hmm. irreducible way, like breaks off. And it's like, now that's something that can exist in a computer. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a, that's a fascinating question to ponder how far down that goes, how many pieces of the human soul can we, can we break off mm -hmm. and put in other places and until we acknowledge not, that it may not <laughs> never have been there it, to does, begin does with. the soul keep <laughs> shrinking and getting tinier and tinier and tinier it kind of does in some way when you when you start to explore i mean this is getting really off the rails but hmm. in certain forms of philosophy and meditation where you really start to investigate your own sense of self and who you are you get down through all these layers of personality into a place where the thing that's at the bottom of all of that is just your your own awareness of yourself and it's like if you're aware of yourself if, you know if you're noticing your own self like what is that thing that's noticing if if you're noticing features of yourself like how could you be seeing yourself internally i don't know it's too complicated to to for me to explain yeah. in a podcast but Mm. No, I get it. There's, there's the always the, the observing awareness. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That very quickly goes down this rabbit hole for me of wondering what, what we are really at the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. Historically, it's been interesting to see how our concept of humanity, and by that I mean the distinctively human, like whatever makes us so special that no other organisms or beings on this earth or maybe even right. beyond it have has been the the goalposts have been moving it, 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 as you said it's already been shrinking down like so much like at first we were the tool users and then we realized oh wait there's plenty of other animals that do the same and then we were the communicators or at least the more social beings but then we learned more about the way animals do that as well and then uh we were the creatures who had the transcendent perception of time you know we could think back into the past and envision the far future and now at least with primates i know they've been studying that and or or observing that kind of behavior in uh, like chimpanzees as well like not just short-term but also very long-term imagination and stuff and there was even a recent thing where 
they even showed how monkeys would like spin in circles to make themselves dizzy to have a more reality transcending experience like in the way that humans (laughs) also seek out this kind of dizzying effect because it alters our perception and in some way that's we find it either enjoyable or just fascinating or doesn't appeal to messing around with our own perception of reality and now it turns out like monkeys are doing that as well and then with ai of course as you mentioned there's the whole part of intellectualizing and reason and you know sort of one of the last hallmarks of like true humanity that we're now ironically sort of volunteering away into this other sense of self or whatever you may call it phenomenon maybe but yeah i think i think you're right that it it doesn't necessarily suggest that ai is actually sentient and i i often feel like a lot of movies about ai kind of fall short in really pinpointing the most interesting question and that's not if if an ai can act and talk like us is it does it have a soul or is it human or does it does it have a consciousness but rather how that reflects back on us and how we have been conceptualizing our sense of conscience and the idea of a soul maybe instead of like projecting that out questioning whether we can create that in something else we should be asking maybe within ourselves was that even there to begin with or is our a whole that self-awareness that you mentioned is that an element that arrived that might just be evolutionary or something biological you know it's probably invested in some biological qualities even though we do not know how they work yet but right it's it's more about that we're not so much creating other sentience rather as we are we're kind of deconstructing our own by engaging in this progress towards ai i think that's a fascinating point. And I think thinking about some of these things and AI related to my experience of launching this, where I think what you're saying about like what movies about AI explore is kind of in a way different from our own experience of interacting with it in in a specific sense, which is one of the disorienting things about the existence of certain kinds of AI now is there's this effect where when I looked at the world as a human, or, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. on the internet or something, you see certain kinds of things or content, or you interact with something. And there's an assumption of, oh, this thing is doing this, like writing an intelligent, you know, paragraph that summarizes something or whatever it is. And a human must have done that, basically, it's kind of the assumption that underlies that. But, but now, when I look at certain things, whether it's an image or hearing a voice or reading some text, there's a tiny part of me that has to be like, is this actually a human? You know, most of the time Mm -hmm. at this point still, you're like, it probably is. You know, you couldn't just tell just by looking at it anymore. Yeah. You know, we're still on that threshold where a lot of it is bad enough quality that you can tell, but we're slowly kind of crossing over that. And that's very relevant to what this movie is portraying where it's like regardless of what the reality is with the with these other people suddenly Mm -hmm. you introduce this idea of they could be it could be something that is not them simulating them you know and i can't just take that at face value anymore and there's a very disorienting feeling that comes with that shift a lot of movies about ai deal you know deal with like oh are the androids actually sentient but 
well, I think Blade Runner a little bit deals with the sense of like Deckard grappling with his own. Mm -hmm. He's grappling with like, am I an android or not? That is a little closer to kind of this this disorienting sensation of like, what does yeah. this say about me that I can no longer recognize in others this thing that I assumed was, you know, fundamentally human? What does mm -hmm. that mean about about me? Yeah, I was going to say there's, I think it also works the other way around. And that's, I think, where we can circle it back to the thing, because there's this moment in the movie where McGrady becomes suspected of being the thing, even though I think we as the viewer at that point are mostly still on the side of McGrady. Like we still assume that he, at least I did, that he is still human at this point. It's when they go out for a bit and then they get back in and that's when McGrady threatens them with the, the dynamite and the flare. And I feel like that's the other yeah. aspect of it, of the whole cosmic horror of it all, is that, you know, there's the issue that you described where you no longer can take at face value what you're seeing in others, but there might also be a moment where you uh, might have to sort of prove or demonstrate your own humanity and you find yourself failing at doing so essentially because you're you're reaching inside for something to communicate that you are in fact not the thing in this case or just that you are you and and that there's nothing that comes up that cannot be misconstrued or corrupted or being uh, yeah cast in this suspicious light in some way and i feel like that's more what the thing kind of plays into that that more that tension between how do you prove humanity to each other? How do you establish enough trust to assume each other's humanity? So yeah, and you know, they obviously have the blood test that kind of does it explicitly. Right. But uh, that to me, at least watching this movie now is some of the question that it raised, some of the questions that are being raised about the more the cosmic yeah. horror stuff of it all and how it relates to perceiving humanity, demonstrating humanity, and in that process reflecting on what it even means in the first place. There's an interesting commentary in there too about trust and the nature of trust and the way that trust is kind of this framework that kind of inherently can't be something that, need, like you can't prove to other people that they can trust you. Or you can't mm -hmm. have someone prove to you that you can trust them ultimately. In real life, when we interact with people, we build up trust over time with people because they do things that make us trust them and they don't do the things that would break that trust. But ultimately, mm -hmm. there's an element to trust that is just you accepting, I'm going to trust this person because you you don't, you you can't prove to yourself in an objective way that like, this person will never hurt me or never do this thing. You know, you just have to kind of like, oh, I, I'm choosing to trust this person. That can break down yeah. very quickly and you can get into a situation where you don't trust anybody because you're looking for ways to prove that people are trustworthy. I don't yeah. know. That doesn't, I don't know what this movie is saying ultimately in terms of like those things, but it's describing that that dynamic, I think, to some extent of, the trust is more of a feeling that you experience than it is like a, something that you can objectively interact with. I was going to go even further and say that trust isn't necessarily something we develop as we get to know people, but it's also in many ways our default position as we move through 
like public spaces, for example, or even right. like you have that example where you're, let's say you're driving down a road, like a two lane road, you're going in one direction and the other traffic is coming from another. There's a whole, like, there's a significant amount of trust that one of those cars that are coming ahead of your direction isn't at some point going to yank at the wheel and just crash like straight into you, right. like a full yeah. frontal crash or, you know, that example where you're on a crowded train station and you you know, you suddenly think like, what if someone pushes me onto the tracks right before the train comes or something like that? There's a lot of default trust that we have in at least the non-threatening nature of other human beings that at least allows us to be in the right. same space as them without being completely paranoid and distrusting as the characters in this movie become. And I feel like that's, I think, might be what this movie demonstrates the most is that whenever a crisis like whatever happens you know in this case it's it's the thing that comes in to assimilate them but how easily that fundamental or that default state of trust is broken and what happens afterwards when it's when it's gone how quickly a social structure even like a small one can completely disintegrate when that basic sense of trust is no longer there that i think that's maybe one of my favorite things about what this movie demonstrates and because once you lose that trust, if mm -hmm. you start looking for reasons to be suspicious of people, you'll find them. It's like... Yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing, because it's that unconscious trust is broken and then you have to consciously yeah. find a way to regain it. And that's when you realize how much of a leap of faith it really was and how re right. little reason you actually had to have <laughs> yes, that kind of yeah. trust to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And somehow, but it is somehow essential to... Right. for us to operate in, in the, the social structures that we have. So it, I don't know, yeah. it, it, it's weird. It's somehow something that both feels like it can break down very easily, but also we rely on all the time and is mm. pretty effectively, pretty resilient ultimately, because the things you're talking about, the basic trust that is involved with just like moving physically through society, hold up even among incredible amounts of tension like that can exist you, you know at least in america it's like there's all this polarization and political tension and conflict between groups but then most of the time i mean it does sometimes tragically but most of the time that tension doesn't actually mm -hmm. manifest itself in a way that makes people distrust each other in physical spaces just in their day-to-day -day life we yeah. definitely have still in our society the things it's not the Cold War anymore necessarily or, you know, the mm -hmm. AIDS crisis, but there's there's definitely, uh, most people I feel like have a sense that there's a thing out there that is infecting people and, you know, it might not be a threat to your life necessarily, but you got to keep, you got to keep an eye out for it and have mm -hmm. some level of uh, awareness about, about it. Yeah. But yeah, that's exactly also why I like the optimistic ending to the movie or the yes. optimistic interpretation that no matter how bad things get there's always some some baseline level of trust that we can return to no matter how bad things get we can just burn <laughs> it all down and start over yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm just kidding i mentioned babylon already uh yeah. we discussed that i th i think this is a movie that will gain a lot more a lot more traction with time than it got. Yeah. I mean, that's a recent one, so it's a tough call to make, but 
just going off my gut, I think it'll, it'll yeah. very different movie, obviously, but I think it'll get more respect. Are there ones that came to your mind maybe while you were watching this or while we were talking about this? Yeah, the funny thing is I can think of a lot of movies that I really enjoyed that others didn't so much or that I think don't get as much appreciation and as they should have. Like I think, right. uh, for example, Terrence Malick's The New World is severely misunderstood. Maybe even The Grey, the, the one with Liam Neeson. Which I'm not sure if I would say that's a masterpiece per se, but I think that's that's a movie that has a lot more going for it than people give it credit for. But but I think the real challenge, which I've been trying to figure out, is can I imagine like one movie that I did not like today or recently oh. picking up traction despite me being now the right. critic who misunderstood it? Because the yeah. even with the the thing, I uh, even Roger Ebert, I think. Uh, didn't like it at first, or he sort of dismissed it as a uh, lesser version of Alien, basically. Yeah. So I was trying to think of, can I imagine myself being totally wrong, or what movie can I imagine myself being completely wrong on? But like coming coming around on that's that's a good yeah. question. Yeah, there's a lot of movies like Blonde with another Armas, I think. Oh yes, which I really didn't enjoy, but. Or Men by... Uh, Alex Garland, yeah. That's a good one. Or that's a good example as well. It's, I didn't. I also didn't enjoy that one that much. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of movies that are obviously bad in a way that I feel like they're not going to get any kind of appreciation later on. The superhero stuff or just the, the kind of movie that immediately goes for mediocrity and doesn't really do anything that would warrant a serious reappreciation. But there's a lot of movies that are kind of out there in a way that I didn't even appreciate now and a lot of people didn't appreciate now. But I wonder which one of those might pick up again at some later point. I didn't dislike it that much, but I wonder if Bones and All might be kind of a, a sleeper hit like that. I don't see it becoming like lauded as this masterpiece, but that was one that seemed to be broadly overlooked from last year that I could see. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a tough call. It's Matrix Resurrections, maybe? Maybe, that's, yeah, that's that's a good one. It's a tough call to make because it's like it's it's trying to step outside of the our current cultural lens about a movie or our 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 presupposition and anyways, if you have as the listener have any suggestions, let us know in our discord server, which you can join uh, there's a link in the show notes or we uh, yes. happily continue many a conversation with. Uh, our listeners and take the occasional suggestion yeah let us know what movie do the critics hate that will become a cult hit don't let us know what movie the critics love that uh, is actually mm -hmm. terrible i get told that all the time people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people love telling you that uh everything everywhere all at once is actually terrible so yeah <laughs> and bonus points if it's also a movie that you didn't enjoy i think it's Right, yes. It's always a good sign of character to be willing to or be open to the possibility that you might have gotten one wrong and that you might change your mind 20 years from now. Some of my favorite movies now are movies that I didn't like the first time I watched them. So it's it's mm -hmm. always great to, to keep an open mind in regard to revisiting things over time. Thank you so much for listening this week. We will be back next week with another episode. If you want to listen to that episode right now, you can 
do so on Nebula. Again, you can sign up at nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning. You can also check out our bonus episodes there. Otherwise, we will catch you next time.